0: Shrinkwrap Radio number 882, Michael Tierno on psychedelics, transformation, and sacred sexuality. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and
1: Shrinkwrap Radio.
0: wrap Radio. All the psychology
1: you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave.
0: My guest today is Michael Tierno, MA, and we'll be discussing his work as an expanded states of consciousness guide and ayahuasca retreat leader in Peru. Now here's the interview. Dr. Michael Tierno, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Dave. I'm happy to be here. I'm not a I'm not a doctor. I don't have a PhD. I have two master's degrees, but um thank you for calling me doctor. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. I somewhere I got that idea. I wasn't I wasn't sure. I should have double checked with you. But uh it I mean, might
1: still be in the cards. I have like three PhDs in my head that I want to do. So Yeah,
0: okay, so it might, be, might well be in the cards. Uh, well, let's find out a bit about, about your uh, background. Before we get into your work with Expanded States of Consciousness, maybe you can tell us a bit about your background. Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in San Francisco. Uh, interestingly, I was always interested in, well, when I was younger, like when I was in high school and stuff, I was always interested in sort of esoteric things, um, kind of, uh, and, and in psychology and consciousness, I took, uh, you know, psychology, a, you know, AP psychology, and I was determined to, uh, that I already knew what I wanted to do in life. I was going to be a clinical psychologist like yourself, but I wanted to work in academia. And, um, I went on that path, uh, through undergraduate at, uh, UC Santa Cruz. Interestingly, something that was a, had a profound impact on me uh, when I was in UC Santa Cruz. I don't know if you've heard of David Chalmers uh, and you know the, the hard problem of consciousness. Um, my uh, girlfriend at the time, who later ended up being my wife and mother of my kids, was his intern, and so she was. She was, you know, copy editing his book while, and so I was learning about these kind of philosophy of mind sort of concepts, uh, you know, my 18, 19, 20 years old. And I've had that hard problem with consciousness in my head throughout the rest of my life. I ended up, uh, when I left uh, undergraduate, I went to in, into a PhD program at uh, at Ohio State but for social psychology. I just found social psychology as I learned more about the diverse field of when you're when you're in high school, you think of clinical psychology. When, when no. you're all taking a bunch of uh, of additional psychology courses, realize the, the expansiveness of what is the psychological field. And so, I really resonated with social psychology. Went to the Ohio State University, started a PhD program there, um, finished a master's degree, and I was really focused on consumer psychology. Let me turn on the slide; look a little better. Consumer psychology, uh, and so I learned that I could get uh, MBA for free by just Laterally moving to the uh, in within the graduate school. And so I went and got an MBA in marketing international business with the intention of going back and finishing the PhD. However, uh, I started doing an internship at a pharmaceutical company and got captured by love of money and not living like a student. So Mm -hmm. I left academia. I left academia, um, you know, worked for a pharmaceutical company for five years, then ran a business in California for almost 20 years. Uh, And then about eight years ago, I, you know, rediscovered altered states on a trip to Peru. Uh, Ayahuasca um, changed my...
0: Before we go there, (laughs) I I can see how I got the idea that you had a PhD because you were enrolled in that PhD program. And uh, what year did you graduate from high school, if I may ask?
1: Ninety-one.
0: Okay, yeah, so that was, uh, there was a lot of information about about consciousness out there, and people were writing about it and so on, yeah, yeah. so I can Absolutely. see how, yeah, yeah, I can see I how you would have gotten got,
1: The book that David Chalmers wrote came out in 95 or 96, right when I was uh, graduating from undergrad.
0: Yeah, I'm not familiar with, with his name, uh, but I'm sure it was a good book, <laughs> and uh, there were so many books coming out around that time. <clears throat> and the whole uh, excitement about about consciousness um what was your home life like
1: my home life yeah uh, my both my parents were immigrants from spain uh okay. my life was um was actually quite quite good I you know had supportive and loving parents they they um you know child of the 70s and 80s so it wasn't uh as hands on as it as it is now but I had a lot of freedom. Um, you know, as long as I didn't get into trouble, my parents kind of let me do what I wanted. Uh, but I always felt that they, they had my back, you know, I always could come to them for help and support. My, they, I felt a lot of love, uh, from them throughout my, uh, upbringing. Um, you know, uh, the Spanish culture is very affectionate, you know, so we mm-hmm. always kiss each other, which is not yeah. common in the, in the States and these things. So I, yeah. A lot of affection from my parents and a lot of care from them. You know, we did things every weekend as a family. Um, you know, it was a I would say it was a good it was a perfect family life, but I mean, you know, it, I don't think a perfect uh home life is necessarily good in terms of uh people being able to be resilient in real life, you know, when they get become adults.
0: So yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <clears throat> I was blessed. and blessed. Pardon? I was and am blessed by, by being blessed.
0: By yes. Yeah. 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 That's had. great. Uh, did you learn to speak Spanish or not?
1: I speak Spanish fluently.
0: Oh, ah, yeah. excellent.
1: I speak with a Castilian accent. So people often ask me, are you from Spain? I can tell that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, st- I studied uh, Spanish in high school and in college and actually went to Spain, uh, for a little while. And, uh, <clears throat> it always felt uh, uh, awkward to do the TH sound uh, that many of the uh, Castilian Spanish is, is yeah. uh, you know, distinguished by, as as opposed to, I grew up in L.A., so I grew up hearing a lot of Mexican Spanish. Right, that's right. Uh, and, and so it took a while to uh, just switch over.
1: <laughs> I don't know if you know about Argentinian Spanish, but Argentinians speak an entirely different sort of way. They, they, like the the double L is pronounced like SH, and they speak a Spanish that was actually older than the Castilian Spanish. Oh my so goodness! In the uh, it's a Spanish. It's kind of like speaking old English, but not quite as uh, as strong as you hear like they, thou, and all that kind of stuff. In Argentina, that some of the pronunciation is quite is even more different than than the distinction between Castilian Spanish and Latin American, Northern Latin American Spanish.
0: No, I did not know that. Yeah. Uh-huh. <clears throat> yeah. So you mentioned that that uh, you had some business. You started a business. What was the business that you started?
1: I owned and own a bakery in uh, California, Northern California, San Francisco, and. Um, and that was a mom and pop. We grew it into a pretty large uh, wholesale operation, but all that is gone uh, from COVID. So now it's just a little mom and pop store again. And I'm happy because I'm very grateful for that uh, because it actually gave me the time over the past four years to really develop myself into what my passion in my life is, which is involvement with expanded States and supporting people and helping people. Yeah, As you know, as I mentioned, like my original thing was to be a clinical psychologist because it was a, a desire to help people. And, you know, I went away from that path for many years uh, or helping people in that way wasn't part of my life. And then through COVID and through the, you know, kind of, you know, uh, decrease in, in the brick and mortar style wholesale business gave me space to like really embrace what I find more interesting, find my passion, my purpose
0: in life. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> So uh, you, one of the things that you uh, say about yourself, and I, I think this is a result. This is edging into your going to Peru. You say for a long time you were a staunch materialist. Uh, How so? What do you mean by that?
1: So, um, so you know, as part of you know learning, you know, academic psychology there's um, there's there's a base sort of understanding that um, you know there's, there's still a big flavor of behaviorism there's yeah. still a big flavor of you know of the of the other sciences and psychology oftentimes you know is trying to like defend themselves to say that they are as sciency as like biology and chemistry and physics and such right. well. yeah. so there's sort of a implicit and maybe explicit uh, understanding that we are just a collection of you know physical particles that come together and like, we're in a behavioral sort of mechanistic manner interacting and engaging in the world, uh, that at base, there's only material, uh, there's only physical stuff. And, uh, you know, one of the theories is that, you know, consciousness emerges from the physical somehow, who knows strong emergence, weak emergence, there's different sorts of, of understanding of that. And I was a very staunch materialist. Like I believed like, Oh, there is only matter. There's only this physical world. And, um, I was pretty well vetted in the argumentation for that. Uh and so I was kind of militant in that and a little bit embarrassingly so because after I went to Peru and and experienced ayahuasca I had to do kind of a kind of like a oops that was uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe there's more to this life than just uh atoms and and uh and, and quantum fields um maybe maybe the the metaphysics that is at base reality is different from from how I had learned it from an intellectual sense because now I was experiencing something that was different, that was more whole, that was more real. Uh, and since then I've done a lot of, uh, reading and research into different metaphysics and philosophy of mind and, you know, have new beliefs.
0: Yeah. How, how would you describe your new belief? Is there a term that captures it, you know, that would be yeah, absolutely. the opposite of, a of a staunch materialist?
1: Absolutely. There is, um, I didn't know we're going to be talking about this, but I do love talking about this. So, um, I hate to say this. So, materialism suffers from something that I mentioned earlier: the hard problem of consciousness, which is how does our experience, consciousness, just basically our experience of the world—the color of a strawberry, the taste of a strawberry, the feeling of of love—the you know everything that is that we can experience when we open our eyes and see the whole the whole of existence and before us everything we're listening to that's impinging on con- consciousness and materialism has no has yet to have an explanation as to how this consciousness can arise from something physical that's called the hard problem of consciousness that i was right the hard problem the easy problem is like correlating brain states with like some you know some kind of conscious pattern or some kind of experience but those are all correlations. There's no there, no one has yet found a causal a causal uh, relation between the physical and to the conscious. So uh, that's the big problem with physicalism. Uh, I didn't think it was a problem at the time, but I just figured we will eventually figure out how these things come to get together. I then embraced something called panpsychism, which is the idea that uh, consciousness is a fundamental part of matter or part of particles so that everything is has some little bit of consciousness to it right so it's yeah. physical and it also everything physical also has like a, a layer of consciousness that's attached to it that's intrinsic that is part of it that's panpsychism the you know the probably the most popular proponent of panpsychism today is philip goff uh he's a english guy very well spoken and then and that also has suffers some some problems like how do you get our rich experience from a collection of little experiences of conscious experiences, it, it felt more real to me, you know, it felt like, Oh, well at least we're embracing this idea of like consciousness existing, but there's still a lot of problems with it. Like my mind couldn't grok like exactly how this was kind of like the ultimate, uh, the ultimate sort of uh, metaphysics. And then in the last like year and a half, I discovered something that is not a new, metaphysics is not new to philosophy of mind, but has more recently been uh, well articulated. Again, uh, you know, started with I guess Kant and Schopenhauer and and Jung, but this is this is a philosophy called idealism, and this uh-huh. just absolutely dismisses with the with the idea of the hard problem because it says that that matter is just what the world looks like through our perceptual apparatus, but really everything is actually mental. Everything is only consciousness. And that is aligned with, uh, and there's, you know, it it aligns with the empirical data as I understand it to be. And it aligns with a lot of, uh, with the, with the experience of expanded states of what happens to the brain when we're on uh psychedelic, for example. And it, it's just, it feels more correct. It's in alignment with some spiritual tra- traditions like Advaita Vedanta, the, 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 the Hindu tradition of that, uh, you know, Brahman and Atman. And we are an Atman that's witnessing the universe from a different perspective, it's just in alignment with so many things, it just feels more correct to me, it feels more embodied for me, it uh, satisfies many of my uh, metaphysical questions. Um, And it's, it's actually taking on a lot of traction, this idealistic, this idealism perspective, both in foundations of physics and in uh, neurobiology, there's people arguing have been arguing about this stuff for years and years. And then, you know, people were not exposed to it.
0: Yeah. So so in 2016, you end up going to Peru, and you've already foreshadowed that you end up uh, taking ayahuasca. Uh, how did you happen to go to Peru? What, how did that uh, the, come about? It's
1: kind of a fun, funny story. Um, I didn't plan on going to Peru. I was uh, My wife and I were kind of in a rocky, rocky place. Uh, we were running a business together, living together, socializing together, and we saw a counselor of sorts, and uh, she said that, she tasked me with doing something that was by myself, to separate myself, so I can have something uh-huh. that I own. And uh, my first, uh, my first idea was to go to the Philippines to learn how to kite surf. That's what I wanted to do. And then my wife at the time said she wanted to kite surf also. That I, that if I was going to kite surf, I had to do it with her, which was a blessing because
0: uh, I'm for- missing that word. You wanted to, do, you wanted to do I- what? Kite
1: surf so if you see him in the bay
0: oh yeah yeah that that looks if i were younger i would have gotten into that as well
1: <laughs> right yeah so that's what i plan on doing but uh through circumstance uh she suggested that we do that together and through a, a series of events uh i talked to a friend who said let's go to the andes and go rappelling down into this into the jungle and uh and then when i looked into that he backed out of it But through my research about the Andes and Peru and Ecuador, I learned about this stuff that wasn't so well known at the time, which was ayahuasca. And I said, I said, okay, well, nobody, I don't think anybody here wants to do ayahuasca with me. So I ended up um, saying, I'm going to go to Peru and do ayahuasca. I felt this calling this like pull to do it. It was kind of a weird situation. I felt like this is really what I'm called to do uh, Mm -hmm. to have this experience. And I, went to Peru and I did ayahuasca, um, had a very intense, first half of my first experience was very intense, very scary, very challenging, followed by one of the most uh, powerful mystical states that I've had since then. Uh, changed my kind of, I had my come to Jesus moment that this maybe this materialism thing wasn't, uh, wasn't what I thought it was, that there was maybe more to reality than when I was giving myself uh, permission to understand.
0: So you say initially the first impact of the ayahuasca was that it was scary, and uh, mm-hmm. disorienting, and so and then later somehow you moved into a an appreciation of a mystical experience. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us about that transition, if you can.
1: Sure. So this was my first uh, ayahuasca journey, some eight years ago or so, and um, and I, I I sat with this guy Paul Diamond. Uh, who's, who's down in Peru. Um, and, and I drank the cup and I thought, a this is going to be, you know, trust and surrender is what I've been told. And I was told that no matter what happens, these are the key words, important words that I tell people as well. I don't serve ayahuasca, but I tell people when they're entering the expanded state is that it will be over. You will come back. Um, so I drink this, uh, this cup and I sit down on my mat and I wait about 40 minutes in the experience of, of transitioning uh, from one conscious state to the others happening is I'm finding it very uncomfortable. I recognize, you know, my own internal need for quote unquote control uh, which is something that we all many, many people kind of suffer. They think they have, they have more control in their lives than they do. So I'm struggling with this transition of consciousness. There's all these images going by my, my, my experience. The room is dark. I can eyes open, eyes closed. Doesn't matter. I'm just seeing a, you know, a pattern of, of, uh, you know, wild things that I've never seen in my life. And I said to myself, oh, you've done it now. You've gone crazy. You're never coming back from this. Uh, this is the end. What a mistake yeah, you made.
0: Yeah, You're going to leave this
1: retreat tomorrow. And then uh, after about an hour of that, I, the words of the, of the, of the, of the person that was sitting it which says, you know, if you find yourself in intense territory, just breathe, And recognize, tell yourself that you're safe and recognize that you will, that we'll be sitting around in a group eating fruit in about four hours. So I told myself, I put attention to my breath, started slowing down. I I started to appreciate my, put myself into the, into the, into the position of the witness and just watched what was going on as opposed to like being, having myself invested in what I was seeing. And all of a sudden things calmed down and I felt, I felt a transition to an experience of being connected with everything in the universe all at once, which is, yeah. you know, part of the traditional, uh, not the traditional, but the typical mystical experience that one gets under psychedelics is that experience of oneness with everything, of connection with anything, of total love and gratitude for the universe and for life and for this uh, gift of life that we've been given. I had that feeling and recognized that, whoa, this whole thing that has opened up in my conscious awareness does not seem like it's made of matter. It seems much more big and beautiful than I'd uh, been able to appreciate or connect with before. And then the ceremony ended. And just like you said, we were having fruit uh, all together as a group and I was forever changed.
0: Yeah. Wow. And um, was it challenging to integrate this into your life?
1: you know it it was challenging because i there was two things that were challenging really so first was to be able to having a community of people to be able to talk with about this experience because uh-huh. and that's something that um that uh that people discussing the in in that' had uh these expanded states experience talk about is that it, it's hard to it's hard to talk about that experience of connection divinity you know uh, gratitude, ultimate gratitude to people who haven't had that experience. They kind of think yeah. like that's a freaking hippie. Like, what is he talking about? It's hard to, it's hard to find like it was, and it's, it's hard to find like-minded folks or folks that have had that experience it's much easier nowadays. Um, but right. it was, and it's easier in the Bay area where I live, but it was back then I was the only person I knew that had had any of these kinds of experiences in their forties. And so it was, I felt a little bit solitary. So that part was hard. Um, uh, the other part that was h- not hard but it was it, it was a process that actually took me the next you know 6 7 years to do was to kind of like un- unpack more and understand like how you know how much more there is to the universe than what i had allowed myself to to uh to um to understand and believe uh prior some things were very easy to to integrate. So for example, I realized that I had this undercurrent of like some kind of shame that was just like an undercurrent that I was not aware of. Uh, and that came into focus. And that was like, and I was saying, well, why is this shame there? There's nothing to be ashamed of. What are you talking about? That just left. It was just gone. So, wow, yeah.
0: Um,
1: and, and some other, other sort of beliefs that I was like, what you do this because of this, this, you know, idea that you had about this, that came from childhood, like that just, melted there was nothing to integrate with regards to that it was just bringing awareness to these parts of self that were outside of awareness and those just dissipated but the things that were challenging was yeah changing my my metaphysics and adjusting into a world where my metaphysics was different and trying to understand that and then finding community with people who uh, had had similar experiences that that was a work in progress and only until like six years ago seven years ago I'm sorry only until it took like five or six years really to like get that real dialed in. So it's been a long process of integration.
0: Yeah. What about getting uh, reintegrating with your wife? Because you'd been so bonded so close that, uh, you know, the counselor had recommended that you needed to go off and do something separately. And uh, this was very separate. So. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's an
1: interesting story. And it's something that I think it's important to, uh, it's important it's a really important story. Thank you for asking this. When I came back, I was behaving differently. I was much not. I was much more at ease with everything. I was not stressed out. I was much more at ease. I was more loving, more open, more vulnerable. All these kinds of things, and I had made these changes in my life. And I remember when my wife hadn't done any of these things, right? So she was still. She couldn't kind of like like she. One time she told me, and it was like. She, I said, she says, you seem different, but I don't believe it. You know, it's like she couldn't quite, she didn't understand what was going on. And so yeah. I think that one of the important things that, you know, I try and communicate with people who have partners is like, you know, you both have to be doing the work. Otherwise you're going to, you know, you're probably going to just trust apart If you're not both working on yourselves, uh, on yourselves individually, um, and she was not working on herself individually. Um, I became more at ease with my life. I became more, uh, not to say anything bad about her because she's a wonderful person, but uh, I just, you know, embraced this new path of mine and uh, and we grew apart and, you know, we're separated now. So for four years, uh-huh. so best thing that ever happened to me is now I'm in a partnership that's completely different. Uh, we're 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 both working on ourselves all the time and getting closer and closer as, as time goes on, which I think is, the, you know, the ideal. Or what you want to be in relationship with another person is to support yeah. each other, allow each other to be their best selves.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, what's the role of psychedelics in the work that you do now? I know you you are involved in uh, in leadership roles in terms of uh, introducing people to expanded states of consciousness, and uh, and the way it worked for you was with ayahuasca. Um, so what's, what's the role of psychedelics in your work now?
1: Psychedelics is one way that we can enter in an expanded state. And I work with, um, you know, people who are, you know, who are doing psychedelics and people in, in other modalities as well, breath work and things like that. Um, but the role is basically like, I think it's, I think there's like three sort of levels to this. Okay. So whatever expanded state, You know, you can say uh, you can say psychedelics and different psychedelics are are good for different sort of specific sort of things. But really, we could just talk about any expanded state. There's kind of three kind of levels that I I like to think of. The first level is that first level of my first experience, which is emptying the vessel, you know, bringing awareness, -awareness, self-awareness are lighter journeys, right? Uh, Bringing awareness to like core beliefs that don't serve us, maybe uh, relationships that we're scared to, to sever or that don't serve us anymore. All this stuff that's hammering around in life that's sort of we're not really aware of how it's impacting self, our being and putting you know uh bringing awareness to those things and then allowing them to release them for example the shame that i was feeling that i didn't know where it came from i had no idea this but it was operating in my life so you know i go to a party and i have a couple drinks because i was trying to mask this shame that was not in awareness i Identify that there was some shame in there about something that I wasn't aware of. And all of a sudden I stopped drinking, you know, it was just not, it wasn't serving me. So that's the first part is emptying the vessel of that, which does not serve. And that's lighter journeys, lighter expanded states done with breastwork, you know, connecting with oneself deeply in that way. The second stage uh, is a deeper, is a deeper uh, experience, which is, uh, which is if, if we haven't emptied the vessel, right, we still have all this stuff jambling in your heads it's very hard to surrender into a deep experience of an expanded state an ego an ego death experience or a mystical state experience it's hard to do that because the mind is still chattering we don't want to surrender we don't want to give up control but once you've emptied the vessel uh future states we can like get close to remembering who we really are which is an ego death experience right so ego being all those labels and stuff that we define ourselves in this world but that really and beliefs and all that crap you know all that stuff that that we picked up over our years you know when that's less there and we can put that sort of to the side for a minute and have the ego death where we we, we were just connected with our you know our divine being and we remember because my clients don't usually think of this stuff as being new they always talk about it in times oh, I remember who I really am. I remember that I'm here for this stuff. I remember that life's not such a, you know, uh, torment of a big deal. I can, ah, oh, okay, I can go, ah, that's okay. Clarity, so remembering who they really are and then they come out with much more ease like I did after my first ayahuasca experiences in the world. And easy, I have an ease, get less triggered by things. They're able to respond rather than react because they've remembered that they are a divine being, that they are connected with the rest of the universe in one you know, field of of of, of consciousness, and uh, and then the third part is life does get hard, and we forget again that you know our divinity. We forget that you know that we don't need to, to take so uh, that we don't need to take things quite so seriously. That life is a game. Uh, we forget that again, and then so I call that third phase going back to the well. So you go back and have another experience this time. Oh, I remember again. Okay, back back to the work, which is the real work the ceremony starts when the ceremony ends. So your life is the real work. When you sit with me for a few hours, that's where we're going to kind of like reorient ourselves. And then when we go back to life, it's like when we actually are doing other living, because that's the important part is to like, if it has an impact on your life, right? Yeah. Yeah,
0: Reminds me of the, of that Zen Zen saying, uh, uh, before enlightenment, uh, chop wood, carry water after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. You know, some people get all involved, not, not very many, very few people get all involved and they they're chasing more and more of the expanded States experience, not, not realizing that, that you, we're here to live, you know, we're here to love, we're here to learn, we're here to like find meaning in life and we're, we're here to experience all that life has to offer. And that's, that's really what we should be striving for, I believe.
0: Yeah, so one of the risks that you're alluding to then is trying to chase the experience, trying to recreate that experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I'm reminded of the title of the book that's always meant a lot to me, You Can't Go Home Again, which mm-hmm. which to me is saying, uh, yeah, and there's this expression too, you can't get into the same river twice exactly yeah
1: so, and that's very rare uh that people chasing the dragon that way is very rare because you know most of the people that i've spoken to that i know of that have done you know even the people like myself who have done ayahuasca have done ayahuasca i don't know 40 something times I, I never am like ang- i'm always anxious to take that cup i'm never like oh i can't wait to do that it's always like okay i don't know what's going to happen you know yeah. so. It's always with a little trepidation and definitely respect, and uh, that that I that I do that. I'm not trying to chase anything. <laughs> you don't know what's on the other side of the what's on the other side uh, at any time, and sometimes they're you know intense experiences, and usually they're they're wonderful. But you know, they're it's it's always it's always a challenging experience to some to some extent.
0: Yeah. So you say you've done it 40 to 50 times with the ayahuasca. That's a lot. Um,
1: Well, over eight uh, years. I mean, I have, I have friends in Peru that have done it hundreds of times because they facilitate retreats and they're drinking, Uh, you know, traditionally when you're facilitating retreat with ayahuasca, you're drinking with the group. Everybody drinks with the group. So I've done hundreds of times.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. No ill ill effects. The thing that does get easier is uh, the um, over time is to actually surrender to the experience and, and, just have the experience and not get attached to things needing to be the way you want them to be, but the way uh-huh. that they are.
0: In um, something that you sent me, you, you talked about the differences in utility between ketamine, MDA, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What are you getting at there?
1: Sure. Well, these are all different. Uh, this is all a little more technical, but, um, so there's kind of like ketamine is the the it's not really a psychedelic but it's the uh dissociative anesthetic that is um legal right now uh in the united states for for um helping people with uh treatment resistant depression anxiety uh ptsd whatnot and it's sort of the least effective uh in terms of you don't just have one experience that then really shatters and changes your life. The, there's a schedule. You have to do it often. It's kind of palliative. So it kind of like just gives you some peace so you can go forward and then you have to do it again. So usually a schedule for ketamine at a ketamine clinic is like you do it once every two weeks for a month or so or two months, and then you do it once a month and you sort of taper off as you get more embodied into that sort of that peaceful state that the ketamine gives you. And there's therapy involved with that, the impact thing, but it's not quite as deep as for example, uh, MDMA or psilocybin. MDMA has the property of decreasing the fear center. It people oftentimes go to a rave or a party and they do MDMA and they fall in love with somebody immediately because something that MDMA a quality it's called an empathogen. It gives people the ability to see another in the in the, in the other's best light. So everybody looks like like amazing, you know. Yeah. And so when you do MDMA in sort of a therapeutic setting and you're uh, and you have the eye shades on, who are you relating to and seeing that person in their best light? You're relating to yourself. So now you see yourself, you know, the same way that somebody had mm-hmm. a rave with other people. You see yourself with self-love, with compassion, gratitude for your life. And you're able to look at the things that might have triggered you in the past and realize, Oh, really? That's part of the past and kind of see it from a different frame and, um, and, you know, enter into, a new relationship with yourself, uh, you know, self-love is probably the most important first kind of factor of en- emptying the vessel, is realizing like, wow, I have this life to live. So you you look at yourself with that self-love and that carries forward. Then you get psilocybin, which which actually has the you know, quote unquote hallucinogenic properties. You can have a full ego death. So it's much more powerful of a of a medicine. Uh, so you can see yourself without all the trappings of ego enter in that in that experience of oneness connected with the whole universe as it you know as it manifests and unfolds uh through time um it can be it can definitely it definitely is a more challenging experience right so it's kind of more than than the mdma or the ketamine and then and then finally have io and, and sorry getting back to psilocybin psilocybin is you know emotional mental maybe spiritual ayahuasca is very similar to psilocybin but it has these other two alkaloids harming and harmaline alkaloids and something about ayahuasca actually and i don't know how it works but i felt it work it actually you know how we have we store trauma in the body it goes into your body and cleans out the traumas that are stored in your body uh and you purge them out and sometimes there's not a whole cognitive reflection as to what's going on You purge and just feel like the sense of relief, or maybe my my arm doesn't hurt anymore, or my you know um, just you know kind of like works at the at the somatic level, which isn't so much the case with psilocybin MDMA ketamine, and then there's other uh, psychedelics as well like ibogaine, uh, dimethyltryptamine five meo. Uh, We don't need to go into those. I don't you know I don't know as much about those.
0: Yeah, what about LSD? Where where would you rate that?
1: LSD is uh, very similar to psilocybin. Problem is LSD, it's a long haul. I've tried LSD in college and, you know, you're talking about 8 to 12 hours. Yeah. Um, people in the guiding community don't work with people who are uh, on LSD or, or wanting to use LSD simply because of the length of time. You know, uh-huh. if you're for someone who's bringing their medicine and they're taking their medicine, you got, you know, 6 to 8 hours with them. If you're doing LSD, you're talking about 12 to 16 hours to have to sit with somebody. So it's just uh it's just a different medicine it's also similar in experience to uh psilocybin uh, but much more longer lasting and there's a different a little bit of a different um you know flavor of it but it can be yeah. worth this. they use it in the fifties and sixties uh in in clinical settings for for uh you know helping people heal
0: yeah well i uh, really appreciate these distinctions that you're drawing and um uh and uh it's it's a good um a good boiling down i think of of the differences uh, Another thing that you have been specializing in is uh, teaching people about sacred sexuality mm-hmm. and um so that sounds like a big topic <laughs> and so tell us about um, Uh, sacred sexuality and what you refer to as polarized relationships Mm -hmm. and the difference between eroticism and sensuality.
1: Okay. Wow. That's a big question.
0: Yeah, it is.
1: Let's start with the difference between eroticism and sensuality because sensuality feeds into sacred sexuality. So eroticism uh, in my model, how I come to understand it is all the mental trappings around sexual experience like fetishes um things like wanting things to be a certain mental titillation space you know the ideas of sex like um someone likes to likes you know to i wanted to get too graphic on the show but someone's interested in like oral sex only like that's what turns them on the mental part of it there's an idea of it and i think that the, the eroticism or bdsm or um you know, wanting to engage in uh polyamorous relationships, like um, you know, because they they have this mental idea that there's not enough in one other person in their partner to satisfy their needs, or they are mm-hmm. not enough to satisfy their needs. These are all mental games that we're playing that are all of ego, and that's the field of eroticism, right? So like the the mental part of sex. Okay. Then you have this sensuality part of sex, which is purely based on the experiential nature of the sexual experience from like a pleasure point of view from a somatic point of view like what does it feel like uh, whole body whole embodied sex you know a whole embodied sexual experience where there's less mental going on and more you know how how much pleasure can you give how much pleasure can you receive uh not just in the genitals but the whole the whole body the whole experience connecting with your lover in a way that you really understand her body so that you know how she likes to be touched how you can maximally uh, uh, provide pleasure for her, and how she can then understand how to maximally pl- provide pleasure for you, and that is basically the the dance of the uh, the sacred sexuality, where you're, you know, you're raising sh- shock, you're raising sexual energy, sexual pleasure, in together as a unit, uh, so that you you just can, you can actually have an expanded state of consciousness at a certain threshold of pleasure, you can actually. You know, uh, some people say that it's actually dimethyltryptamine that's being released, that's endogenous in your mind, but you can have a, 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 a an experience that feels very much like not quite as long, but feels very much like psilocybin or dimethyltryptamine where you're actually seeing, you know, hallucinatory or I don't think they're hallucinations. I think they're just they're just uh, something that we don't have access to. Um, and that is just a different way of being. It, it involves real commitment and, and trust between both partners um, and, uh, and, a, and and a longing to get to know each other better and to grow together. And that's what I think is, you know, where sacred sexuality comes from. One way, if you think of the Kama Sutra, Sutra, right, you know, people think of it as like an erotic book of like pictures to show, but those pictures aren't of eroticism, those pictures are to show you different positions to increase uh, sexual energy. You know, We see them from the Western mind, oh look, dirty pictures, right? But they're not, they're actual positions, they're like uh, positions to increase sexual energy and sensuality, right? And in these different positions, you have different energy chains. I don't know exactly, I haven't studied the Kama Sutra, but it's important to recognize it's not a dirty picture book, it's a manual for increasing pleasure. So that, I think, covers uh, sacred sexuality to some extent and sensuality and eroticism. And then we can go into polarized relationships. A polarized relationship is a relationship um, where one partner is primarily masculine. Of course, we all have masculine and feminine uh, energies inside us. And the other partner is primarily feminine. And together they make a whole. The feminine has certain needs and desires that are different from the masculine partner right so the feminine you know desires trust and safety primarily right and she has all kinds of you know you know generally a, a she she has all kinds of capabilities and characteristics that i don't have right and then i uh, primarily want to as a masculine partner want to feel useful and needed i like to you know really feel that i am of service to my to my to my partner when she's happy and i feel like i'm taking care of her i feel good right because it just feels good for me when she feels that she can really trust me. And then when she feels absolutely and totally safe around me, she can then open herself up and be her most authentic self because I give, you know, I'm allowing for that by, by really helping her, supporting her and then not controlling in in any, anything like that. Like some people might think, but just allowing her to, to, to be as vulnerable as possible around me. And I too can be as vulnerable as possible around her. So that's the magic of the polarized relationship. If you think about a masculine person and a feminine person together in union, where they're able to express themselves and meet each other's needs, you know, as as much as possible, you have kind of a whole, you have kind of like the yin yang, where you have the masculine, you know, the masculine side and the feminine side, you know, together to make a whole. So that's, that's, that's a very short version of explaining uh, uh, polarized relationships.
0: So people, um, uh, come to you for uh for some sort of counseling services or guidance <laughs> services what are the delivery mechanisms of of your business
1: so i have three uh first and foremost is one on ones so i sit with them, uh, with people in an expanded state they're in the expanded state i sit with them i make sure that the that they feel safe that they're taken care of i listen to them with total curiosity and absolute zero judgment so that when they're in that more open state, they can feel comfortable and help them unpack what they're, what they're getting to, what they're alluding to so they can really distill it. their long, they long journeys. Um, and then my third role in those one-on-ones is to extract and record as much information as possible from them so that they can then integrate it afterwards. Right. So set the container, uh, listen to them and then help them recall afterwards, uh, What their experience is, what they want to bring to their life, you know. Afterwards, did did
0: you say you take notes or you make a recording? Or
1: I take notes, and I'm a pioneer in uh, in taking a recording and transcribing it. Um, So Uh the deliverables that I give, I don't know anybody, any other guides that give these deliverables. I'm, I'm, you know, teaching people, explaining people how to do this because clients really appreciate having this long form you know, up to 160 pages of the narrative of what transpired because you forget a lot of stuff in the expanded state when you come back to reality. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, and of course, the narrative, the transcript doesn't capture everything, but what it does is it gives you enough cues that when you're reading the transcript, you can re-remember what was going on in your mind for those things. Oh, yeah, I was thinking about my mom and all this kind of stuff, and like I need to do this and that and the other thing. So it's really people have found it incredibly beneficial for the for the integration aspect is to have these uh, these transfers. Yeah, transfer, yeah it, I would
0: uh, I would think uh, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. that's
1: what the what the thing is. And then I'm also recording notes, and then uh, and my deliverable also to the client is, uh, you know, oftentimes letter writing uh, affirmations, uh, physical practices. Um, you know, meditation practices, different things that just come up as they come up that um, I just give some suggestions for them to implement into their own life so that they can integrate the what they, what they have. The second, um, the second project I have is called Men of Integrity. And these are four day retreats with four different expanded state modalities. They're very intense. Uh, Therefore, at the moment, we only have them for, for men. And they are, um, and they you know it's four days it's it's quite it's quite a quiet four days full of uh, workshops and expanded states experiences and working together and the the brilliance about about this the thing that i'm most proud of and has the most impact is once they graduate from the from the retreat they are now enter into like graduate community or whatever and then we continue to do one a month once a month support calls we have a study group we're studying uh, a book this year one chapter a month we're doing work on that so um, there's a group of about twenty seven men in this group so far, and we hope to have about 50 or 60 by the end of 20 or by the middle of 2025. Um, that's the men of integrity retreats. And the final thing uh, that I do is I have a uh, ayahuasca uh, retreat center in Peru that I co run with some of my friends down in Peru. That Those are the people that have done ayahuasca hundreds of times. Um, And uh, that is very important because inevitably, especially when people hear about my own path, how I came on this path with ayahuasca, people start asking me, like, what about ayahuasca? Unfortunately, most retreat centers, I know a lot of people in this space, most retreat centers aren't, you know, things happen, right? They're They're made of people. I know everybody who works at Heart Sanctuary. I trust everybody down there with, with, with anything. I know their families. I know, you know, we're kind of a family down there. And so I have to have a place where I can send friends, clients where I have zero concern about, about how that place is being run because at Uh the end it's my, that's on it. So I know how it's being run. I've been there uh, a bunch of times. I've experienced it. Uh, We have a hundred percent success rate with people being just blown away by it. Um, There's no funny business. Uh, The, the, The ceremonies, which, uh, you know, have been notorious with uh, some of the, you know, probably read in the news that, you know, some um, unethical, you know, sort of things happen with some clients, with some women clients, because the sort of uh, cultural uh, expectations for some of the Indigenous tribes are not the same as our Western sort of ideas in terms of what consent is and whatnot on an altar state. And we're very, very, very straight in terms of like our rules and like how we proceed with ceremony and our integrity. And so I can send anybody down there and know that they're going to be, you know, that they're not going to come back and tell me like, why did you send me? Like, they're going to be like, oh, that was amazing. And that, so that's critical that heart sanctuary retreats, which is what it's called, that I have that place down there that I can send clients and friends to without uh, any kind of qualification or yeah. without any kind. Uh, concern
0: yeah yeah that's that's, yeah, that's, 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 that's <clears throat> i appreciate the uh the ethical concerns that that you bring to that now it's
1: critical uh, dr dave because when people i mean these are very vulnerable states that people are in right it's and, and they're at their most vulnerable and uh unfortunately there's a you know there is an increased likelihood that they could be taken advantage of. And so, you know, I think that the ethical integrity of a retreat center and of a guide and whoever you're working with has to be the most important thing, because in the end, they're the ones that are setting the container for you. They're the ones that are responsible for your safety. Make sure that things are being run according to some sort of standards. And so it's incredibly important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that uh, you want to get across here that you know that you hoped would come out in this interview?
1: No, a lot of stuff came out that I wasn't planning on talking about. Good, (laughs) (laughs) Good. so that
0: was (laughs) that's that's supposed to happen, (laughs) and and um, so you know, i I guess I guess you would be considered an underground. Would you say an underground therapist, an underground guide?
1: I just call myself an expanded state guide. I don't say underground or anything like that. It's just, it's just a, it's a, you know, it was, you know, a lot of this has to do with who provides the medicine. So if you don't provide the medicine, you can, luckily in the Bay Area, there's a lot of places where you can, there's kind of dispensary models where you can go and get your own medicine. So I don't yeah. have to that sort of thing. Um, people come with their own things. So I'm just, so it's not really underground. People you know, bring their own stuff. They're instructed on what they should get. They go to the, you know, where they got to get it. You can find it online. It's not uh difficult. I don't like to say that very much because, um, you know, I don't want people who are going to do this on their own because that's a recipe for like uh, a high risk thing, but um it's not hard to find it. So the underground nature of this is less underground than it might've been some years ago. That makes sense. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I re- really appreciate all that you've shared and uh and I appreciate learning about the ethical considerations that you bring to your work. And yeah. uh so I I think that's really important. So, um Master, rather rather than doctor, I'll call you Master yeah. Michael Tierno. <laughs> yeah. yep. Thanks Um, for being my guest today on Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank
1: you very much. I want to tell you I'm so inspired by you having done this for, you know, close to a thousand interviews over 18 years and just like powering you through. And I uh, I, I admire you and I admire how much knowledge you must have gained from interviewing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people over these last 18 years. Good on you.
0: My recent guest, Michael Tierno, M.A., was a delight to interview. About eight years ago, he felt drawn to travel to Peru to take ayahuasca. Growing up in San Francisco and then attending college at UC Santa Cruz, he was no stranger to psychedelic substances, but mostly in a recreational or casual context. He enrolled in a doctoral counseling program, but dropped out from the full doctoral program accepting a master's degree for his trouble. He felt he was wasting his time and decided to go into the family bakery business and make some money. He was in his 40s when he decided to act on the impulse to go to an ayahuasca retreat in Peru. The ayahuasca experience really rocked his world. His studies of psychology, both as an undergraduate and doctoral student, had firmly molded him to embrace a rational materialist conception of the universe. His ayahuasca experience suggested a far more complex view of reality and led to profound personal transformation. Part of that transformation propelled him into his right livelihood of becoming a spiritual guide. I might have greeted his claimed transformation with a degree of skepticism, but as we discussed his work, I was impressed by his commitment to ethical practice and the degree to which he has educated himself about psychedelics and their spiritual and healing potential. I was also impressed by his ability to clearly articulate his own ayahuasca experience and categorize the properties of other psychedelic substances, including ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, and LSD. His integrity was furthermore underscored when he corrected me for referring to him as a, quotes, underground guide. He pointed out that he does not provide the psychedelics for the people who consult with him individually, Also, he emphasized that he does not always employ psychedelics in guiding his customers to expanded states of consciousness. In addition to his personal one-on-one guidance, he also offers a four-session men's retreat with follow-up and refers seekers to the Ayahuasca Center in Peru, which he co-owns. If I were in the market for the sorts of services Michael Tierno is offering, I would trust him.
2: Dear Dr. Dave, dear Shrinkwrap radio listeners, hello from Istanbul, Turkey. And my name is Yücel Ersuz, and avid listener of Rap radio. Now, I'll continue to speak with my foreign accent. It's more difficult to understand, and that's a good thing. You'll have to pay more attention, and at the very end, I'll be talking about important stuff. I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm not a psychologist, not even a faculty member at the psychology department in a university. In fact, I've only taken a single course in psychology in my entire life, which was Psychology 102, and don't ask me what happened to Psychology 101. After I graduated, I picked up my first psychology book, After I was 40, which was only a few years ago. For 20 years, I've done nothing that has to do with psychology. So why am I listening to Shrink Rap Radio? Because Dr. Dave and his guests are helping me answer a very important question. How do I become the self that I truly am? To appreciate all the efforts that Dr. Dave puts in, I thought the least I could do was become a sponsor. And that's exactly what I did. Now, here's the important stuff that I said I would be talking about. Folks, please pick up your laptops, punch in the numbers, and be a sponsor so we can continue to share the wisdom around the world. It will only take a minute, cost you less than your average dinner, and buy you more soul food than you can ever imagine. Thank you all. Have a great day. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you, Yussel, there in Istanbul, Turkey, for becoming a monthly financial donor. It's great to hear from someone in your corner of the world especially someone who is so passionate to live from his true self. And thank you for encouraging others to stand up and follow your fine example. Time once again to shrink wrap it up. Big thanks to today's guest, Michael Tierno, M.A., for sharing his personal experiences and his work on expanding states of consciousness as a guide and ayahuasca retreat leader in Peru. Next week, I'll be speaking with Mayo Clinic professor Stephen Whiteside, Ph.D., about his new book, A Parent's Guide to Treating Childhood Anxiety and OCD. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make you dangerous.